nuclear weapons, low probability means you need to take that threat seriously. And I hope, I hope the administration is publicly not taking anything off the table. I get asked all the time, what would you do? And I don't answer that because who knows? I might be back someday when I'm in a position where I've got to actually deliver that message. This should be a private conversation about the ungodly pain that will be felt if they choose to go down that path. And you should make it clear and express, and you shouldn't be debating it. You should have decided what you're gonna do. And when they do it, you can't hold a meeting. So the real risk is he'll do it, and there'll be a national, they'll say, we've, we've convened a National Security Council meeting of the deputies. When he does it, we're talking minutes. You need to begin to do the 15 things you said you were gonna do in minutes. If you're not, if you're having a meeting and debating and holding press conferences, Putin has already prevailed. So, and by the way, I think if you do those things, you, de you make that probability that he chooses that bat even lower. Oil and gas makes modern life possible. The energy the world requires today and tomorrow will come from decisions made in the oil field today. Oil and gas will remain the leading source of fuel to power affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, clean, storable, and transportable power. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit LockedIn.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast brought to you by Upright Digital. I am your co-host, Greg Davis, coming to you live from about 40,000 feet in the Air Force Nun studio. We'd like to thank you for tuning in today, and man, have we got a good one for you. Before we get to our distinguished guests, let me first bring in my fellow host, and partner in crime, Mr. William David DeRode, also known in CIA circles as the asset in Houston. David, how are you, partner? I'm doing well, doing well. Not right. uh, not airsick and, and uh, we got a plane full of good people. You look well, you look well. When I got the call to uh, check on my availability for this podcast, it's what I refer to as a calendar clearer. Uh, I think we're definitely out punching our weight class here, bud. Can we do this? Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. so. Well, uh, I hope so too. We're going to give it our best shot either way. Uh, well, should we should we bring in our distinguished guest at this point? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's it's definitely a distinct honor and privilege to uh, have uh, former Secretary of State Michael Pompeo on the plane with us today, doing our first ever podcast from the uh, from the heights above. Uh, multiple states we're crossing over right now and um, uh, can't thank uh, you enough for agreeing to do this glad you're here with us and 
Welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing good. It's great to be with you. I've not done a podcast when I was high before either. And here we are. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, I texted uh, quite a few friends, a lot of uh, energy company CEOs, some folks you know, uh, some former military, uh, Marine Corps guys, and some some frog men and uh, a lot of good questions. A lot of good questions we got. We redacted quite a few, obviously, but um, you know, I, I thought it would be good to just kind of give a highlight. Um, you know, we do have uh, listeners in 140 countries. Uh, some people are familiar with you. I don't know how they couldn't be, but some are not. And I got to say, um, you know, born in California. Number one, you know, top of your class, graduated from West Point, uh, captain of the U.S. Army, uh, Harvard Law School grad, editor of the Harvard Review, which is pretty cool, an attorney, a practicing attorney in tax, and then co-founder and CEO of an aviation company, uh, CEO of an energy services company, three-time congressman, Kansas, Director of the CIA and Secretary of State, so. and and now your crowning achievement, yeah, the Oilfield 360 podcast, yes, yeah, right. absolutely, that's <laughs> as good as it gets, yes. So I mean, that's quite a resume, and you're still a young man. What what all you got on your plate? What's been keeping you busy? Oh goodness, so uh, still fighting the fight for America. So I've been engaged in the policy space even since I left. Uh, the former secretary, there's a new secretary, so it's not my. Uh, uh, when I see problems, when I wake up in the morning, they're not my problem in the first instance. Uh, but still very much care about the direction the country's going. So I've done a lot of writing. Uh, second, uh, back in the business world, too. It's what I did for a decade before I lost my mind and ran for Congress in 2009 and 10, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, and then finally, uh, we've got a big election coming up here in the United States. We need to try and get the country headed back in the direction that makes sense from my perspective. And so I've been out trying to help candidates be successful in a couple of weeks when the, the ballots are all counted. I, ho- I hope we'll have that. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the American people's mindset is uh, when we unpack the ballots beginning in November. That's good. Well, a lot has changed since you, you left office, clearly. Uh, I'm not sure what I would put on the pros side of that list. A lot of cons in terms of just how things have unfolded. How, how do you think about our, our listening audience is very well informed on energy, they know how important it is. It's vital to everything. It really does touch every aspect of your life. How how do you see the world through your lens, having been Secretary of State, having been an executive in the industry? Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of American energy in particular and how that impacted your ability to serve as secretary. Yeah, it turns out it was, it was very helpful to have been in the industry. We were, we were a tiny little company, a player in the service industry. We we did distribution for oil field equipment. We had an operation in Midland, Texas that did drilling rig repair. So it's a classic service company. But we got a chance to meet the real people who were out there actually getting it done. Um, but also saw the macro environment and how, you know, you were you, you were going to ride that or not, right? How you could count the number of rigs in the field on a given day in uh, North America and have some idea of what your uh, project list was going to look like for the next handful of months, how busy you were going to be. Uh, as America's Secretary of State, I saw that from... The global perspective, I must say, uh, I don't know, several hundred meetings as CI director and secretary of state, very few of them didn't involve energy. At some level, 
that that prime minister, that foreign minister, that president wanted access to American technology and know-how and our product. So whether they wanted Schlumberger Halliburton and the big tech guys or they wanted access to American LNG or even sometimes America's uh, knowledge about nuclear power plant construction, right? All, all of the things that go into the total energy matrix, they knew that America was a reliable partner and they wanted some of it. So it was incredibly powerful as a diplomatic tool, right? Granting them access, helping them get to the right place was something that they all knew they needed to be friends with America for. And so when you shut that down, frankly, in the way we have begun to shut it down over these 20 months, you reduce the power that the president of the United States has or his secretary of state has as he's traveling across the world. Well, and it kind of sounds like you had, you lead with the carrot, but you also bring a stick, right? Because at that point, having achieved energy independence, which I still think should be a national holiday, we tried to do it for 50 years. And as soon as we did it, we decided not to not to produce anymore. Uh, it's got to be incredibly leveraging to be able to walk in and know that we can stand on our own two feet, you know, so yeah, your negotiating position has to be much better. And the good news is they know it, right? right? So the bad guys know. So when you're with the Chinese, they know they need energy from around the world and you don't. That that has set the table. If you're prepared to actually use that to your advantage, that is, you're not going to shut it into the United States, uh, enter into the Paris Climate Accords and let the Chinese steal and build coal fire power plants, right? If you're prepared to cave to them, then the and the reality of the leverage that you possess or the power that you possess or call it the an economist would say comparative advantage that you possess. Uh, if you're if you're not prepared to uh, uh, exploit that, to use a word that has negative, kind of, but you're not prepared to use it for American goodness, yeah. then uh, then it's not worth very much. And you're trying to generate positive outcomes for everybody. It sounds like that was a perspective you took into those yeah. discussions, right? Yeah, you um. We reminded the Europeans consistently, right? If you all shut your coal-fired power plants, you abandon nuclear technology, and you turn to a essentially a sole source provider for natural gas who doesn't share our view of the world, something's going to break. And we, we I, I don't pretend for a moment we would have predicted what has transpired in Ukraine over the last months, but we knew it would end badly. And you can see President Trump, there's a famous video of him saying it, you went back and got my notes and the Secretary of Treasury's notes from our time. We were imploring them to, at the very least, diversify their capabilities in terms of the, the geography of their sources of energy and the nature of the sources of energy they were prepared to use. And they didn't, and they're going to pay the price for it come this winter. So what happens this winter in your mind? Hard to know exactly how difficult it will be, but it's going to be tough. I was in Germany uh, six, eight weeks ago. The big German manufacturers all have been warned. You may have to operate every other day, go to six, eight hour work days instead of 14 hour work days, no second shift, essentially cut back the usage of uh, natural gas. Uh, if that's the case, the, the ramifications for America are very significant. Um, BASF, Mercedes, BMW, all the big heavy natural gas use in Germany, all supply product to American manufacturing and American consumption. Uh, so it won't be, we won't be immune from that. It's hard to know how bad it will be. They've done a reasonably good job of stocking for the winter, getting inventory levels up. Maybe they can make it through. It partly depends on what, what the weather's like uh, and how long it's cold. If they get lucky and they have a relatively mild winter, they may thread the needle. Sure. So you're saying we can't control Mother Nature? 
Uh, no, it, it, uh, Mother Day, Mother, Mother, the, the good Lord drives this, not, uh, not Greta Thunberg. Yes. Prang and Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang and Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Nord Stream Pipeline, what, what happened there, do you think? I have no inside information. Every bone in my body tells me Vladimir Putin blew up his own pipeline. It, it, in a sense, right, it, it, from his perspective, it's not worth anything. He's not making any money from it today. It might be that five years from now, 10 years from now, that might be reopened and Russia might generate some wealth. So he's got value in the tail. But he decided the value in the tail wasn't worth sending a message, which is like, is this a cage fight? And I just locked the cage door, threw away the key, and I'm in this thing. Are you guys in this? And uh, my sense is that, that that will someday be rebuilt, but it's an awfully long ways off. And I hope, I hope the Europeans, not just Germany, I hope the Europeans will all draw the right conclusion here, which is that sign me up for clean air and safe drinking water, but we're going to be using fossil fuels for decades to come. Sure. And we better have an abundant, affordable, diverse, reliable set of sources for that energy that comes from places that don't want to destroy us. That just sounds like common sense. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know, along those lines, I- I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on Ukraine because... I think it was shortly after they annexed Crimea, I was I was speaking to a group of our investors uh, and they put me on the spot and they said, hey, what do you think is the biggest geopolitical upset that's going to come in the next five years or 10 years? And they, I think, expected me to say something about China, which no doubt they're the long term adversary we've got to be focused on. But I said, look, I worry about Russia extending their their reach into Ukraine because, one, there's a lot of history there that people don't fully appreciate certainly through the lens of somebody like Putin. But the other thing that people really didn't appreciate at the time is that it's also the breadbasket to Europe, right? Yeah. And so he's already got your energy source. I'm pretty sure he's going to flip that button at some point. That's an easy button. And then if he controls your food source, what are you going to do? Yeah. Red winter wheat. I'm a Kansan. We make something on the order 12 to 15% of the red winter wheat for the world. That's right. Uh, breadbasket makes the rest in Europe. Uh, and a handful of other places in the States and, and around the world. Uh, no, no doubt about that. Food security was something Putin was driving at. It's going to be a real challenge to figure out how to get this out, uh, both to provide revenue for the Ukrainians and to feed the world as we move through. What, you, what? Th- and the last piece of that is, you know, they're, they're connected. You, you don't make food without energy. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, Fertilizer, fertilizer just got really expensive, by the and, way. And uh, if you're a Kansas farmer, you probably have a really good year this year because your crop's going to be worth a lot. Sure. But, man, when you go to put the fertilizer down and hey, even even farm implements, see, everything in the supply chain for the agriculture community going to be really expensive. So the inflation we're all feeling is a direct result of some of these political decisions that now have been manifesting themselves for a couple decades. You, So you've, you've actually sat down, talked with Putin. How does he get out of this situation with Ukraine? I mean, wh- how is he viewed in the world? What, where does this end, do you think? 
you, know, you, you can never predict how these things end, and I wouldn't pretend to to, to know the answer to that. Um, he clearly failed in his strategic decision-making, him and his military had lied to him about their capabilities. But I don't, I don't know that this ends in a way that in the West we think about, well, we'll sit down at the table, we'll draw some lines, it'll all be good. Uh, imagine you're Vladimir Putin and you deeply believe that's yours. If you lay down your weapons tomorrow, it's just temporary. Uh, and I, we shouldn't just, we shouldn't look at this in isolation. The Chinese have a play here as well. They're going to have very affordable energy from a source now that doesn't have to deliver West. It can just deliver East for an awfully long time. The Chinese are unlikely to want this to settle out for a while. It's putting a burden on the West. We're having to build missiles and rockets and all kinds of things to protect our European friends and, in the end, Americans as well. Uh, my, my sense is, in the end, this ends when Vladimir Putin is gone. And I don't know if that is gone. He's no longer alive, no longer the leader, or has given up a substantial piece of his power. But Putin and those around him, it's, it, Putin and those around him are determined to stay at this. And that means we're going to have to stay at it until it's finished as well. Uh, and, you know, I served as a soldier in the Cold War. I was a tank platoon leader in Germany from 1986 to 1989. We patrolled the then East German border. I was looking across the line and I left in October with no idea that the empire was about to come down, that the wall was going to come down in 89. And two years later, the Soviet Union would be dissolved. No idea. I don't think we have any idea when this Russian leadership will fail as well. But what you can do is the hard work that increases the probability that happens and you can bring it forward. You can make it more likely that it happens a week from now than a month from now by good, sound, strategic decisions on behalf of the West. That's interesting. So a lot of people are concerned about the threat, the use of nuclear weapons. Do you see, do you see that possibly coming into play? Sure. He might do it. Uh, it's inside his doctrine. It's inside his uh, belief in protecting the homeland. Uh, it's entirely possible he might. I, I think it's still a pretty low probability event, but nuclear weapons, low probability means you need to take that threat seriously. And I hope, I hope the administration is publicly not taking anything off the table. I get asked all the time, what would you do? And I don't answer that because who knows? I might be back someday when I'm in a position where I've got to actually deliver that message. This should be a private conversation about the ungodly pain that will be felt if they choose to go down that path. And you should make it clear and express, and you shouldn't be debating it. You should have decided what you can do. And when they do it, you can't hold a meeting. So the real risk is he'll do it, and they'll, be a they'll say, we've, we've convened a National Security Council meeting of the deputies. When he does it, we're talking minutes. You need to begin to do the 15 things you said you were going to do in minutes. If you're not, if you're having a meeting and debating and holding press conferences, Putin has already prevailed. So, and by the way, I think if you do those things, you de you make that probability that he chooses that path even lower. Yeah. So what happens to the price of oil and the energy market? That's what you guys do. That's not for me. <laughs> it has uh, nowhere to go, but uh, yeah. currently. Yeah. Ah, right. What's, what's, what's crude oil demand? 100, 100 million barrels a day ish? Yes, right? roughly. Yeah, 103, whatever the number is. Uh, you could have a slight demand destruction as we move through something that looks like a, a recession. But in the end, demand's not likely to vary uh, a whole lot, as best I can tell. Uh, and we have underinvested in supply, we, the West, collectively, in the long-term supply chain to not only 
uh, get it out of the ground, but to get it to where it needs to be, to get it refined and get it to the end state in dramatic ways. And so a whole pile of capital is going to have to fly at that problem set. And in the meantime, price is the only way you can allocate. Well, and the, the thing that I'm cons- that I'm concerned about is as an investor and as, as somebody who cares about their community is the impact it has on real people. Right. Yeah. And we talk about inflation and we talk about headline inflation. But what that's really not telling the full story of is you show up to the pump and you're paying 100 percent more, if not greater. Right. And that I come from blue collar people. That's having a significant impact in the in the. You're right. The, the structural underinvestment that has occurred in the last five to 10 years, it's only increasing with the SG and the push to renewables and the IRA uh, and just capital flows in general. That's not a quick fix. It's, it's, it's what I tell people is, look, it's very easy to flip the switch off. It is extremely difficult to turn it, flip it back on because you all those welders, blue collar workers, rig hands, they go find other jobs. They don't they're not layabouts who wait for the government to send them a check. They go where the work is. And when they go through cycles like that, that are pretty violent, their families get disrupted. It's hard to bring those folks back. Um, and plus, yeah. your, your points about supply chain are real. I mean, yeah. we, are, we, are, we are constrained. Even if we said, hey, here's all the money you need. Go drill as much as you can. Right. There's real friction there. Yeah. Your point about the workforce is absolutely true. I saw this at subscale. Uh, when we had the collapse of prices in 2008, I was in the industry then. Uh, we we had uh, a lot fewer people in 2009 than we did in 2007. And then I was in Congress, but the company I had in 2010, it was it was moving again, right? It was it was uh, moving back out, and to get the workforce back was incredibly difficult. Not partly because they had jobs, but partly to your point, it's like really for another 18 months or 26 months until the government goes and crashes this thing again. No, thank you. So it was so it was more difficult in that sense. Uh, and this is this is a this is a, a real challenge. We talk about it at the macro level and about the geopolitical implications. But your point about real families being impacted and com- entire communities being impacted is very very real. Certainly in places where there's energy in the ground in the United States, but all across the world, people are impacted by this as well. When when their prices for natural gas in Europe today are six or eight times what they are here in the United States, you're having to make some really hard choices for your family. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust. A leading provider of U.S. oil field research, known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for information. question in my mind and, and it's one it's a big topic so but i'd like to start here is around china you know are we going to learn any lessons from what europe is going through and what i mean by that is you know the push to electrify everything the push to be 100 percent evs in the u.s uh you know our biggest global adversary controls very meaningful parts of that supply chain uh, I would, you would probably obviously know better than me, but I suspect they've infiltrated some pretty meaningful infrastructure in the U.S. I kind of just had this this picture in my mind of like they're building a giant off switch, so that once we all plug ourselves into the to the you know the light socket for all of our needs, you know 
what if they just turn out the lights on us? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, it'll be fascinating to see what we learn. And when I say we, I, I mean opinion shapers in the world. So opinion shapers in the world have been driving for at least 20 years, 25 years on this idea of climate change. And whatever one thinks about the science, just park it for a moment. The dream, the fantasy you were going to run this world and feed a, feed another billion people on sunshine and windmills was, was just that, right? It was It's ludicrous on its face. And so to move to this world to say we're going to, you know, we're not going to, what did GM say? We're not going to sell anything but electric vehicles in just a handful of years. Okay. Uh, that electricity is going to be generated by natural gas, as sure as I'm sitting here. And that, and unless you want to park every other day or park when that, right? The, the reliable, affordable base energy for the next decades is going to be natural gas. I hope someone solves this. I hope while we're on this podcast, someone came up with a way to do nuke fusion and our prob- we land and our problems are over. We have free energy abundant for the world tomorrow. In the meantime, serious people need to be serious about making sure that the, the most destitute places in the world, think of Africa, think of Southeast Asia, think of all the, think of all these places. Think of inner city America, the, the places that are the most struggling, the mo- need this affordable energy the most. And for the elites to run around the world suggesting somehow we were going to we were going to just polemic our way out of this has done an enormous amount of destruction. It's a lot of it's a lot of word salad, too. Right. And just not a lot of substance behind yeah. it for those who the actually math is do never math, put it. Yeah, right? exactly. It doesn't work. So why is there such a miss? Is it relates to those who are representing us supposedly in Congress? They seem to miss the, you know, I'm in the risk business and, you know, I try to get folks to think about, you know, primary risk, but not only primary risk, but secondary, tertiary, quaternary down, you know, they don't have an, they don't have an appreciation for the impact some of their decisions make. We were talking earlier you know, common sense has become uncommon these days. Why, why is that so? And, and and that's kind of a big question, I guess. Yeah, I'm not even sure where to begin to unpack that. For the most part, my experience as a member of Congress was the, the, they know they, they can they can see it as well. But often they're uh, the people that are impacting their capacity to be elected. I don't mean that in a negative sense. Our founders had this vision for how you get elected. It's the right, it's the right thing. But uh, not everybody gets one vote. But there are people who have more influence than others. It's just it's true uh, in terms of policy making. And there has been a uh, uh, elite group of folks who have a long time grabbed this uh, nonsensical set of ideas. And I, it's not just—it's not just limited to the energy space. Sure. I could go through half a dozen others that wouldn't fit the podcast, but where things that we just know not to be true are presented as factual, and then policy is built around that over decades. Uh, and when you when you do that, you you end up with what the Chinese Communist Party is praying. You end up with an America in decline. And I don't I don't believe that, but the risk of that is real. And I hope the American people will come to see that. And will demand that their elected officials, not just Congress, their school board members, oh, yeah. the people on their city council and county commissions, their secretaries of state and their governors, that they simply demand that they, to your point about risk, that they understand the risks to them, to the people that they represent, and deliver good outcomes against that set of risks. 
and and leave the noise, the big noise that people go to Davos and talk about. Leave leave, leave that to somebody else. Sure. Well, there's enough of that too. I think that that's finally coming to roost. We talk about inflation, but the crime is up everywhere. You know, I, I think as as current leadership has really kind of taken full latitude to display their real intent behind the euphemisms, uh, it, it's activated a lot of people. And I, and I think we're seeing change, particularly in Houston, where David and I live. It's happening in the community level. People are running for school board, yeah, you know, and it's and it's it's impactful. And, and honestly, I'm an optimist by nature, but I, I think that that's a good thing because it's it's waking people up to reality. It's not just Houston. I, I've been all over the country these last 20 months. It is very real. People can feel it and they'll be, you know, they'll tolerate it for a little while, but then it starts to impact their kids. And when it starts to impact their kids, not just mama bears, but papa bears too. Everybody's like, nah, not, not happening yeah, on my watch. And, uh, and, and you can see it. And it's a good thing because that will mean more input from people with, to your point about risk, the people with the right incentives to make sure we're teaching the right things to the next generation will demand that they be in charge and have influence. And that's a, that's an enormously positive bet, bet uh, for the American people to, that's an enormous pos- positive outcome for the American people. And I would bet that that trend continues. I think you're right. So let's talk about China for a minute, if we will. I know, I know that's an area you've had a lot of focus in. Do you think there's um, instability, internal threats occurring in China that are that are causing Z to take certain positions? Well, look, he's just uh, named himself uh, leader for life. So there's not a lot of threat to him. He's got the security state wrapped around his finger. He is running a surveillance state that the world has never seen. I mean, the surveillance state inside of China, as a CIA director, we were trying to figure out how to push back again. I mean, it is it is epically capable. Uh, and when they have a digital currency, they will know every financial transaction that takes place inside of their country. Just imagine that. They'll know if you bought a piece of gum. They'll know if you paid a lawyer. The, I mean, it is the, the capacity to control 1.4 billion people through the use of a digital currency is uh, epically scary. Uh, but they've got lots of challenges. Uh, their financial institutions are a mess. When an innovator gets too far out and has a business that's too successful, they are going to yank it back. Uh, you've got demographic problems because of their one-child policy. So they've got complexity. But she's aware of all of that, too. He is trying to make sure that he puts his nationalist vision for China in front of the economy. He is willing to let COVID go to, right? He's going to get COVID to zero for a control. He's, if it costs him 2% of GDP, so be it. And then he is going to drive because he, he believes in his heart, just as I, I was saying to you earlier, Vladimir Putin believes that Ukraine is part of Russia. She believes not only that Taiwan is part of China, but he believes that China rightfully is the middle kingdom for the world. I mean, it is. In, and so the fact that they've been on the floor for so long and now have the capacity to go be the global hegemon is something he says, well, of course, it is my duty to go deliver that for my people. And he is determined to do it. Well, and, and, and unlike us, they, they have a very long memory and somebody who can remain in power for the duration of his life can afford to do the long play, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, he, that Counter that by... Uh, when you take uh, out innovation and risk-taking, 
problems will flare up, right? We see in our government. When our government spends a bunch of money on some cockamamie tax credit for some environmental policy, it usually ends bad. Rethink Solyndra, right? Uh, they're going to do a lot of that, too. They're going to throw a ton of money at R&D and the like, and some of it will work, but they'll, uh, I was going to use an adult word, they'll, uh, they'll use some of it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and look, the reality is, and, and we experienced this in oil and gas, right? Between 2007 and call it 2017, 18, we had some cyclical ups and downs, but we as an industry, you know, we had a lot of unknown unknowns in terms of the capital we were actually putting to work drilling wells. We, we, we tried to, you know, make every shale play work. They don't all work. We thought we could put 12 wells on a section. It's probably like four. You know, that's real money because these are wells are, you know, seven, eight million a pop. That's that's nothing to sneeze at. It's a capital intensive industry. But at the end of the day, we bent the cost curve so much on the supply side that it was a victory for consuming Americans. Investors maybe didn't fare so well, because if you look at a bell curve and and measure the distribution of outcomes, let's be generous and say our, our mean ROI or our multiple of investment was a two. Well, so is our standard deviation, which means that all of my my outcomes are kind of binary, uh, which is a hard way to allocate capital. And I think uh, there's an undercurrent and, and I don't know, I guess people are just kind of content to let it happen. But to achieve technological breakthrough, you do have to destroy capital on some level. You've got to try things and experiment and explore. I think we're going to look back in 10, 15 years and we're going to look at this energy transition space and see a very similar dynamic. And I'm hopeful Look, we invest across the, the value chain, so I have to be agnostic. Uh, and of course, we need more, more supplies, cleaner supplies. Our industry could do better, you name it. But man, there's going to be a lot of capital destruction. Is my fear, uh, and and you will not see me, you know, as a personal investor, chasing those money flows. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense right now. Yeah, the math matters. In the end, yeah. you can you can wish it away for a moment. Uh, if you if you get the math wrong and you don't identify the real risk and present a value proposition against the risk profile, uh, bad things happen. And in our economy, you're right. There was a lot of capital destroyed, but the net wealth creation was staggering. Right. The, the net wealth creation for our country was absolutely staggering and continues. Frankly, there's a huge long tail to that. Yeah. Lo low cost energy is is key to economic success. And, and if people don't recognize it, you know, where globally we're seeing the most growth and populists, right, and populations, yeah. they're going to burn tires if they have to. It's, they don't it's, care. It's interesting. When I, and it would have been 2015. I was a member of Congress, and we got rid of the crude oil export ban, right? It was one of the crowning achievements of my time in Congress. Hard to do. We were, I'm trying to think, well, we had a Democrat president, but we got it done. We got in legislation. Joe Barton, a couple of the folks just kept leaning on it, and I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee. We managed to push it through. The Biden administration, as we sit here today, is contemplating limiting exports of our product on the theory that, well, if we keep it at home, it'll be cheaper. <laughs> you all are shaking your heads, right? You all are, you, and we all know this is a global commodity. In the end, we want to produce it here, uh, provide it an affordable, globally affordable marketplace and crush our competition by providing affordable energy for American industry. To, to think you're gonna, you know, just lock it in, but just shut it in here is, is just a fool's errand and it'll end badly for us. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, 
as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com. So the crazy thing is, I don't think the average person really understands the different, you know, grades of, of oil huh. and, and what works and what doesn't work. And the fact that we've not built any true meaningful refining capacity that really adheres to what we have unlocked, you know, with, with U.S. shale. And so, you know, we, we do have to use a blended, yeah. you know. Of course. Yep. And, and so I, I, I it's, it's. It's really unfortunate. What do you think about him, uh, you know, releasing more from the SBR? To me, I'm really concerned from a national security perspective about kind of where we are. Um, we certainly have the ability to produce. We have the ability to be energy independent. But, um, you know, that SBR was put there for a reason. It seems yeah. like we're yeah, he's really now, getting low. He's now made it the PSR, the Political Strategic Reserve. <laughs> Uh, it's just silly. <laughs> so all in all, I think he said he's going to release 180 million barrels, less than two days of global consumption. Yeah, you can see how the markets react to the announcement, right? He says, "Well, I'm going to do this because it's going to lower prices." Do the math. Uh, what's I don't know. What's uh, Brett crude at 91, WTI at 84 today, something like that. I mean, it's just it's it's nutty to think you're going to do it. And so it's all theater. It's all right. political. It's all ice cream cones, right? It's just literally childish to think you're going to do this. And then you create the incremental national security problem as well, which is should something really happen and we need those barrels. Now, now we got to go find them. Well, and, and P.S., China's not dumb. And to your point about them benefiting or being a beneficiary of the Russian conflict with the Ukrainians, they're stocking up, right? And they're stocking up at a discount. Uh, so, I, you know, yes, the, the SBR was not intended for this purpose. It is absolutely being deployed as a price influencer and it's just it's it's not only you know in violation of the spirit of what we did it for it's 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 dangerous it's also destined to fail yes yeah, there's no, no 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 market participant anybody sitting at a trading desk in houston texas staring at 14 more bar- 14 million barrels being released from the sbr isn't going to try and take a short right absolutely I mean, not it's right <laughs> and maybe even just the opposite but suffice say it will prove not only stupid but ineffective uh, it's possible to be both stupid and effective. I've seen that. You can also be smart and ineffective. I've seen that. This is both stupid and ineffective, which is really killer. It's it's awesome. Well, and da- David is fond of saying, and I, I want to. He, he coined a phrase, and I don't know if it's yours or not, but I love it. Some people are educated beyond their intelligence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. My, my former deceased business partner would say that he was roommates with uh, Rumsfeld at Princeton and then flight instructors in the Navy together back in the day. He was a character. But, um, you know, going back to China for a second and Russia, what do you think about the, the kind of the, the seemingly alliance that seems to be performing between Xi and Putin? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's complicated by their histories. They don't like each other very much. The people of the two countries don't like each other very much. But it is driven by now what is a strategic imperative for them, which is neither of them has very many friends. Right. And from Xi's perspective, this is a home run. I don't know what he's buying at today. I, you, you might know. 12, 12, 15 bucks a barrel discount probably uh, to market right. prices. So if you're 
uh, crude oil producer anywhere in the world, uh, Saudis, who the, whoever it is, or a gas producer, uh, you, you now have been displaced because Russia has a single market. The Chinese know that, and they're going to go drive to a deep discount. Uh, she has also been pretty smart about understanding that uh, that's his western flank and his southern flank also uh, from a military perspective. Think also access to the Arctic. And so natural sense from a security perspective for the two authoritarian regimes with real economies to join together. So I suspect uh, we'll continue to see them grow closer and closer in the years ahead. I hope, I hope that's not true. I hope we can deliver Russia to the West, closer to the West. But we're a long ways from that. So why isn't why isn't G rolled on Taiwan yet? I don't think he will. You know, why would you? You took Taiwan without invading. Excuse me, Hong Kong without invading. You took Tibet without invading. You moved into the West, right? This is China's really kind of a made-up country, right? It's really, I mean, historic mainland China is mainland, but everybody else is just a bolt-on. And he did all of that. That's not quite true. For the most part, he didn't need military conquest to achieve that. I think he thinks the same thing in Taiwan. So think cyber, think economic, think espionage, think uh, think uh, uh, soft blockade, making it more difficult. Uh, think economic extortion. Those are the tools that I think she is most likely to use. And then at some point, they'll magically be invited to put a tank battalion on the island. <laughs> right By the invitation of the Taiwanese government. That's a lot cleaner. Anybody who watched Island Hopping in World War II knows that like rolling Marines on a beach is hard work. And so and, and he also needs to take Taiwan intact. He needs the semiconductor plant to be alive and well and operating. So I, I have a lot of very conservative friends who think differently than me. But my judgment is he thinks there's a, a, a more value added way to achieve the political outcome he's looking for. It's been interesting. And in, in, I don't know. I mean, you and I have had a conversation about this before. It seems like they are able to exert a great deal of control without ruffling a lot of feathers the same way I would say Putin is doing with, with Ukraine. And, and a lot of it's, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand how they're doing that, but they seem to be very effective in, in getting involved in local uh, state and national politics, even in our own country, the espionage aspects of things where, uh, I mean, they're almost helping us use our own body weight to, to work against ourselves. <laughs> well, Jiu-jitsu. Jiu yeah. yeah. When you look at the, uh, to your point, David, they've been very good about using American dollars. Think about their belt and road program, right? They're going to go build roads and bridges and loan a bunch of go money to governments that can't afford to pay them back. How do you think that ends? Yeah. Loan to own. Look, in your state, in your city, in Houston, Texas, we rolled up what I believe was the largest spying operation against the United States ever yep. from the consulate in Houston, Texas. Unreal. Uh, and we'd note about it. America just didn't want to deal with it because we thought, well, we're making a lot of money. They could react badly. Uh, we we made the different decision. I, I pushed the heck out of it and we ran a great operation. Uh that's just an exemplar of Chinese tools of power and influence, right? Their propaganda campaigns. I, I assure you this. There are Chinese people showing up, uh, Chinese passport holders, showing up at PTA meetings all across Texas. School board meetings all across Texas. You're all looking at me like, oh, that's crazy. But they show up with a $10,000 check for a new swing set, right? And it's not because they want your kid to be healthy. <laughs> it's 
because they're making friends and they have scale in terms of capital and people. They have a long-term perspective on this and uh, we have to recognize the threat and deal with it. And we are highly capable of doing that. That is good to hear. <laughs> Talk about Iran, which is a interesting, interesting place. With the political upheaval that seems to be occurring now. What are your thoughts about yeah. Iran? You know, it's interesting, just to, to back up one step, we talk about Russia or Iran or China, they're all deeply connected. The, the, we, in, in the economic world, it's, it's been, a, it's been a, a 30 or 40 year period where people focused on macroeconomics and interest rates and fiscal policy. The risks now are geostrategic. And, and that, I think that's different than 25, 30, 40 years ago. And Iran is a perfect exemplar of that. You have a theocracy that is the world's largest state sponsor of terror with not insignificant energy resources and uh, very few friends. And so who are they shipping their missiles and drones to today? To the Russians who are killing Ukrainians. And we've got a guy named Rob Malley who works for Secretary Blinken sitting with Russians negotiating a deal to give the Iranians more money. I mean, it's just it's an absence of just simple logic uh, that suggests no, we should continue to pressure that regime. The Persians, the Iranians are highly capable, highly educated, wholly interested in rejoining the world. The theocratic regime is not. And so you have to treat the two separately and independently. Uh, I think we'll actually get there. Uh, the Biden team has screwed this up royally. I don't, I don't mean that politically. Um, they just screwed this up royally in that we had built out stability in the Middle East. We had Multiple nations agreed that Israel actually had a right to exist. We had their economies cranked up together. We had them all pointing their uh, security apparatuses at Iran. We had Iran as isolated as they've ever been. And we worked with our partner Israel and we're crushing it together. And these guys went and said, nope, we're going to go sit with the Iranians and cuddle up with them and make a deal. And of course, it's no surprise that the Saudis won't take our phone call. And that the Israelis are thinking about acting on their own. And the Emiratis are trying to figure out if a Chinese port is a good idea for them. Uh, this, is, this is what happens when you sort of screw up your strategic understanding of who's with you and who's against you. As a, you know, Dr. Kissinger wouldn't talk about it so simple, but I'm from Kansas. It, it's pretty, for me, for me, this is pretty easy. Like when the flag goes up, like who's going to be pointing their guns at you and who's going to be pointing them against you? And the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Omanis, the Emiratis, they're going to be pointing their guns with us and the Iranians are going to be pointing their guns at us. This seems... Just really easy. Well, not nonsensical. And to, to your point earlier, it's the knock-on effects that people. It's just how do you not see that coming? To your point earlier, when we were not talking, kind of talking offline, you know how badly we botched the Afghanistan departure. There's, you know, to use your your, your words, no coincidence that very shortly thereafter, Mr. Putin felt like he could just do whatever he wanted. Right? We looked, we looked silly on the world stage. Deterrence is hard to do, and it is always temporary. And so you have to stay at it day in and day out. That's and right. when uh, when you leave Americans behind and you get a bunch of them killed as you're exiting something you've you've committed yourself to for two decades, uh, the the bad guys feel a little less concerned. So, kind of on that on those lines, um, what do you think Israel feels right now in terms of our historical support from a security standpoint 
relative to what's going on now. It's always been Israel's not ever been a, a partisan issue. It, it ought not be. But when you're when you're when you're literally about to hand their arch adversary a nuclear weapon, or at least a pathway to a nuclear weapon, that's not what friends are for. And so I think they are trying to figure out what that means. And they're trying to convince the Biden administration that it's a bad idea. But they are wholly prepared. They will not sit by for an Iranian nuclear weapon. They just it's not plausible for their continued existence. So anybody, any Zionist uh, asked to know that you got to go do the hard work. And I think they are preparing to do that very hard work. So what about uh, Saudi, given um, given the rhetoric coming out of Washington in terms of how they view us, you know, at present and in the future, do you think? I think about the Arab Gulf states together. Saudi Arabia is the, the, the biggest player by far. Our, 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 plot was, our plot line was really simple. Uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is an important national security partner. They are a very important economic partner. And the crown prince himself, who I spent an awful lot of time with, is one of the greatest reformers in the history of the Middle East. Now, the Washington Post and New York Times would scream at me for that. And they would shout Jamal Khashoggi until they couldn't speak until they were hoarse. Uh, I'm against murder. Killing a Jamal Khashoggi was a bad thing. No one condones it. We sanctioned 14 Saudis for what happened in that consulate in Turkey. Uh, but the relationship between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United States matters an awful lot. Uh, they host American military facilities. They're a great security partner. And on human rights, um, look, they're, they're not where we are. But man, if you're a Saudi female, you're happy with what the crown prince is doing. And you may wish you could move faster and you want to get there quicker, but uh, good things are happening in that place. And dump, I'm sure there'll be missteps. I'm sure they'll screw it up. We screwed things up too, right? We had, we have, we, we do things that are, we have soldiers behave badly. We hope they'll put the accountability mechanisms in. Uh, but in the end, the United States has a long-term lasting set of relationships with the Gulf Arab states that matter an awful lot. And for American prosperity and security, um, we should be encouraging them to be with us and not with China and Russia. How do you, how do you think we do that? Given, given kind of some of the, some of the recent feelings towards towards the kingdom, relative to, uh, to them. Yeah, Le- leaders have to lead, they have to explain to the American people why this matters to them. Why, if you're sitting in. Uh, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, or Maxwell, New Mexico, wherever it may be, wh- why the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is an important friend to the United States. The American people are pretty damn savvy, right? So they're, they're against murder too, but they appreciate what the things that matter to our country. And if you'd articulate that and defend it, I think the American people see it's the right thing to do as well. What ideologies do you think are the biggest threat to the free world, the emerging world, the world that we would, I think, all like to live in. Oh, my goodness. I think it's right here at home. I think the uh, one can put whatever name wants on it. But teaching the next generation that our country was founded on a racist idea, uh, teaching the next generation of kids that somehow uh, America is a force for bad in the world, uh, walking them away from simple things that just are, are known truths. Right. There's only two genders. Right. When you start walking away from these things that like, like you, you all laugh when I say that. 
you get people teaching their kids that there's more than two genders, and this is just it's not talk to any. This is just this is science, and what one can talk about all kinds of other things, but that core fact, these things are truth, and the truth matters. And when when progressives or uh, critical race theorists or whatever you call them, when they begin to walk us off these truths, and the next generation embeds them in their mind and in their heart then that is, that's a dangerous set of ideologies. You, you do not have to claim American perfection to claim American exceptionalism. Those, you, can, you can hold American imperfection and American exceptionalism in your head at the same time. And if you, if you don't teach your kids that, and our schools don't, then that's dangerous. I'll, I'll take all the other isms, Islamism, uh, Buddhism, uh, Marxist-Leninism, all those, other play, all those things that everybody talks about in international space. My biggest concern is that uh, Americanism is walked away from. Well, and historically, you look at any great global power, you know, there's always some sort of Trojan horse. It's internal decay that that sets the outcome in, in motion. And, you know, I love to find ways to work my eight-year-old daughter, Kate, into my podcast. But uh, I took her to New Orleans over the summer, and uh, we made a stop at the World War II Museum, which if, if you're listening to this and you've never been, you absolutely should do it. It's almost like a civic duty. Uh, but we sat and we watched that film and, you know, to experience that through the lens of an eight year old girl and it's graphic and maybe a little bit, you know, mature for her, but I wanted her to see it because it's, it's real. And it ended and she looked at me and she kind of just had tears in her eyes. She's like, daddy, that, that really happened. And I said, baby, yes, it did. And don't you ever let anybody speak poorly of America ever. And where is that? That's kind I, I, of, I don't, where yeah, is that? it's still there. We were talking about this before. It's still out there. I see it every day when I'm out meeting with folks. That that spirit's still there. Uh, we we've allowed a uh, social media narrative and a groupthink narrative in our our uh, our biggest media empires to convince too many people that it's not there. I promise you, it's still deep inside the American spirit. And folks like you taking your kids to go see that this is being replicated all across the country. I I am I am heartened by that. So what motivates? This, this push by it seems like the media and others to to destroy our country. I don't know. I can't explain it. If I could explain it, I could solve it. <laughs> I uh, I try to I try not to go to the darker places and be too cynical about it. I think I think there are those who just hold these views deeply and they believe them sincerely, and they're just wrong. George Carlin had some views on that. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> started I, with I the self-esteem this. movement. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a lot of history. So, um, I guess this was kind of an interesting question. I mean, who do you see most dangerous on the world stage right now in terms of leaders? You know, is it Kim? Is it Putin? Is it Xi? Is it somebody we're not thinking about? Oh, goodness. Uh, Xi Jinping is clearly the leader with the capacity and the intent to change the way we live in America. Uh, and so I, it would be him and those with his ideology and power inside of the Chinese Communist Party. I'll give you one more that we don't talk about enough, and it's on our southern border. And it's not just immigration. Uh, the, the current government in Mexico... Uh, has nationalized assets. Uh, it is moving ever closer to China itself. They're permitting the transit of uh, fentanyl into our country. 
and we have ungoverned spaces on our southern border that we've never had before, that the Mexican government has no control over. And these cartels, they are jihad-like, right? The difference between a jihadist and a cartel, you, you, can, you can identify some, but man, there's a lot of overlap. And that's always been 6,000 miles away, right? They've always fomented terror from a long ways away, and we had all that standoff. We don't have that standoff space anymore. And I worry a great deal about Mexico getting control of its own real estate and the need for us to help them do it if they choose not to. That was, was something that came up the other day, and I made, made the comment, you know, why, why have we not targeted the cartels the same way we targeted Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, yeah, et cetera, that's, that's, the war my, that's exactly my point. Look, it's hard. They're a sovereign nation. They've been a great partner. We have huge economic interests there. So it's, it's complicated. But in the end, uh, it, it, we may have to, it may have to be self-help. Uh, I hope we can convince the Mexican government to take control and responsibility for that. But in the event that uh, the risk becomes too high, and we, we, may, we can all argue about if we've reached that point or not, in the end, you got to protect your own country. Yeah. Well, and, and you also have to recognize that some people operate, operate under a system of values that says, you know, there, there are no rules. There are just consequences. Yeah. And, sure. they, only, and they only speak one language, and it's yeah. consequence. Yeah. Power. All right, so let's go to less less uh, complicated <laughs> topics. Um, you've just finished or about to finish a book that uh, that you've written, and I think you're going to release it uh, in the January time frame. Yeah. So that's kind of the that's, that's kind of yeah, the target. So, Tell us a little bit about that. So I've been working on it for uh, 18 months now. Uh, the book is called Never Give an Inch. And the subtitle is Fighting for uh, the America I Love. Uh, it's about the, my four years of service uh, in the Trump administration. And it tries to lay out what we did, why we did it, what we were thinking at the time, how we were approaching America's place in the world. Talks about the things that worked. Talks about the things that didn't. Not everything we did ended up working. Uh, we made some decisions that I, if I had to do over, I'd probably do them differently. Uh, but it tries to lay out in as, as much candor and clarity as I can about how we thought about the world to lay down this history because it's not been told yet. Uh, I was only an security person in the team that lasted all four years. Uh, a lot of, a lot of folks who were there 16, 12 months wrote books. Uh, this will be, this will be a, an attempt from my perspective to lay down what I saw for those four years and why it mattered to every American. Well, I, I know Greg and I were talking about it on the, on the way up here. Um, I'm glad you stuck with it for four years. I think y'all did a lot of good stuff. Uh, obviously, um, sounds like it was challenging for some, but glad you uh, you had the resolve to stick it out and be there. Is um, you know to me, uh, you know when you look at your uh, resume, what you've done and what you continue to do. I mean, I think you're a real hero. Well, bless you. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, the heroes are the folks who are out there doing the really hard stuff. Uh, it was, it was a, a long four years, no doubt about it. It is always hard work to serve at that level to try and deliver every day. And, but I'm, I'm proud of the work we did, the place that we found America and where we left it. I think we materially improved it. Uh, and uh, I, I regret we didn't get four more years uh, to continue that mission. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens in two more years. I we guess. will. We'll see. So, one of the things we always ask our guests uh, that come on, if 
you know, they might have any words of wisdom or advice that they might want to share at present to our listening audience or what they might would have liked to have known, thought 20, 30 years ago, uh, not to, not to date you or anything, but, uh, do you have any, any words of wisdom or, or advice that you might like to share? Uh, Oh goodness. You know, when, when young people, you know, college or what have you, or starting their careers, ask me, like, how do I be successful? I think first you need to define success, and that'll change over time, right? Family, work, all of that. Um, but then second, I've seen uh, successful people who were lazy, but not very many. Right. <laughs> uh, and in the, in the end, uh, if you're focused on the things that you care about and you prioritize them in your life, and you keep reminding yourself about what it is you, what, what it is you're trying to accomplish and why, and you're prepared to work your tail off, good things happen. Not every day, not always. There'll always be setbacks. But in the end, uh, I, 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 I think of hard work, the, the willingness to focus on the objective as central to success. Uh, and that's my only word of wisdom to, to people who think I'm just going to try and be clever. You should be clever, but make sure you put the energy behind it as well. Uh, that's good advice. I tell people they uh, they ought to go to cobbler's shops and look at who's sending their shoes to get resold because you're wearing the shoe leather off your feet and you're moving around, yeah, getting a, stuff done. Way to say the same thing. Yes, sir. Well, I know Greg and well, I could talk for Well, David, thank you. We really appreciate you doing this. Thank you, David. Thank us. you, Greg. It was wonderful. I hope everybody enjoys our conversation. Yeah, it's a real privilege. Thank you for being Likewise. Well, well, let me sign us off. But before I do that, I got to cut a deal with the former secretary. So I've got three books on pre-order, one for myself, one for Mr. D. Road, and one for my daughter. But in order for me to hit my order now button, you've got to agree to inscribe one for my daughter. You got it. For your daughter, you got it. All right. I might even sign one for you, too. hundred <laughs> percent. Hey, I'm, I'll, I'd be thrilled with that, but she's the, she's, the, she's the focus. Amen. Happy to do it. All right. Well, you're a great patriot, sir. Thank you very much for your service to our nation. Thank you very much for giving us of your time today. Uh, and, and thank you to our listening audience for tuning in. Uh, we hope to see you soon on our next podcast. David and I will, will commit to getting that out sooner rather than later. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on uprightdigital.com or wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, and be well. Talk soon. Locked in global energy and marine, uncommonly independent. Locked in is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Locked in's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit lockedin.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com.